Welcome, adventurers. This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I'm your co-host, Demi. And today we're bringing you the long-awaited episode on Eorzea's Beast Tribes. Indeed. We originally thought that this was going to be a pretty quick and easy episode, but as it turns out, in true MuseCast form, we had a lot to say about these Beast Tribes too. So we are going to make this into multiple episodes. So today's episode will focus on the Realm Reborn Beast Tribes, and then later we'll have an episode about the Heavensward and the Stormblood Beast Tribe quests as well. Indeed, indeed. Now, first off, let's discuss where the line is between human and non-human as it's considered in Eorzea. The races that players can pick in Character Creator, the playable races, are generally referred to as the spoken races, and there's currently six of them, soon to be seven, if you count the Viera. But there are over a dozen other creatures, let's say, with whom we can communicate, who have command of language, and that we don't need the echo to interact with. It's a bit strange that they called them then spoken and distinguish beast tribe races from spoken, seeing as all of them can speak. Yeah, but that's the lore. I guess so. Now, many of these races who aren't known as the spoken races have formed societies that we interact with over the course of our adventures, and those are the beast tribes, as Square Enix likes to say, and as the lore itself even likes to say. Most of these societies are on the outskirts of major human settlements like Gradania, or like Ishgard, like Uldah, and through various circumstances, different ways, we come into contact with a lot of these groups and help them out. Yes, that's true, that the beastmen, let's say, and women that we come into contact with have formed settlements near human civilization, but often not near their actual homelands. For example, there are way more Sahagin than you see hanging out on this one reef in western Lenosha. They actually have a whole city underneath the ocean in the Indigo Deep. And when we see Zelfatol in the dungeon, that's actually the homeland of the Ixal. The small group of the Cattle Nine that we interact with represents only a fraction of the Ixal that exists. And because the settlements that we end up visiting represent such small portions of the Beast Tribe at large, and also often represent a friendlier faction, we have to realize that the entire race of the Beast Tribe is much larger than what we see. That's true. And as a result of that, there are often factions of these Beast Tribes that are not so friendly toward us and who don't necessarily want to interact with the adventurers, and they don't want our help. Yeah, and unfortunately, they're probably the majority. I do wonder if part of this had something to do with the way that the name even Beast Tribes came about, and what the name Beast Tribe was really used for. So let's go into that a little bit, shall we? We shall. So, Beast Tribes actually is a pretty recently coined term, and you really needn't look all that far back. In fact, in 1559, during the reign of Sasabal Usisibal and Nanasha Unasha, also known as the current Sultana's parents, the term was first used by the Sultanate to define entities who opposed or interfered with what Uldah stood for. 
So anybody known as a beast tribe was then exiled from Uldah and kicked out of the state. It didn't take very long before the other city-states, Limsalaminza and Gridania, for example, also jumped on board and they defined beast tribes of their own. And those beast tribes were then exiled from their city-states and treated as enemies. So I, I wonder how some of those beast tribes, so to speak, would now feel, especially seeing as it's a commonplace term used by adventurers and city-states alike. I don't think they'd be terribly fond of it. I can't imagine they would be either. They have their own identities and their own cultures. Mm-hmm. But even the adventurers who are helping them sort of use this term to refer to them anyways. Yeah. I don't think Eorzea is socially progressive yet as to think of an alternative name. What would we call them? I'm really not sure either. Maybe exiled? <laughs> the exiled tribes? Because, I mean, that is the truth of it. Is It was used as a distinction for these tribes. That said, though, it seems like other tribes who may not necessarily interfere with the interests of a city-state are still defined as beast tribes by some. For example, the Mughals. Are they beast <laughs> tribes? It certainly doesn't seem like they're doing anything wrong. In fact, they deliver the mail in some cases, but I, I hardly think that they're beast tribes. And that's something that's mentioned in this sort of editorial article in the lore book, Volume 2. So it was an interesting take to read about how this term was coined and maybe gather some insight as to why we call the Beast Tribes what we do. It's true. And another point which recurs anytime we interact with a member of one of these tribes is that as with any race, not all members act the same and not all of them have the same values. Generally, the factions that we interact with have split off from the majority in the homeland and they're splintered off in a smaller group for some reason or another. They're morally opposed, such as the Amalja or the Ixal. Right. And oftentimes, they're pretty conveniently color-coded, too. Cogent of the blue <laughs> versus Cogent of the red, for example. Yeah. The good Amalja also are blue and the bad Amalja also are red. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that there aren't reasons why most people people, most humans, in our cities and societies, are afraid of them because the bad factions do carry out attacks, sometimes kidnappings, other malicious acts, and these few good guys have to fight against that stereotype. Sometimes even the good guys will be summoning primals inadvertently. For example, Gabu is a good kobold, but he still ended up summoning Titan, and these primals are a threat to the city-states as a result. Yes, they do all believe and serve in that deity. Even the good Sahagin worship Leviathan. Right, so I can't imagine that that serves any help, for example, toward their cause. But it's nice to see that adventurers are willing to help, and maybe those bonds with the adventurers can somehow, maybe one day, lighten up the city-states' stance on these beast tribes. Who knows? Yeah, it was Minfilia back in 1.0 that proposed allying with the beast tribes in the fight against the primals. Another one of her many contributions. But this isn't the Minfilia episode anymore. It's not. This is the beast <laughs> tribe episode. So hey, let's talk about some more things that may help people decide what's a beast tribe and what isn't. Within the game, at least. Well, appearance is certainly one thing. They don't have humanoid faces like the Mikote or the Aradu. So one big clue is how they speak. That's very true. 
Yeah, sometimes the beast tribes have these sort of grammatical or speech quirks that set them apart from traditional common speech. For example, sylphs use this ones or waking ones. They don't use your pronouns or your proper nouns like people would. The Sahagan and the Ananta extend their S's a lot, like you see with Lakshmi even. The Ixal talk in a sort of backwards fashion like Yoda does. And let's not forget the Mughals, of course, who end a lot of their statements with Kupo. <laughs> this is true, Kupo. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing that many of them have in common that also sets them apart from what we consider civilized society. So now you know some ways about how to determine what might be considered a beast tribe. Let's talk about some of the ones who are actually defined in-game as beast tribes through these beast tribe side quests. Let's start with the kobolds, because they amuse me. All right. They're kind of small, mole-like creatures. They wear metal masks and armor, and their primary industry is smithing, actually. They're the worshippers of Titan, so they're very in tune with the Earth. Now, despite them being a ground-based beast tribe race... They somehow have their bases in Lenosha around Limsa Liminza. Yes, the original treaty that Limsa made with the kobolds was that the Lemincins would have command over the sea and that the kobolds would have command over the earth. However, of course, Morob stopped giving a shit and started jumped to call. <laughs> she jumped started... on the beast tribe train and uh, <laughs> there went that treaty. Yes, and they started colonizing land in Lenosha, and that's the origin of the conflict. So most Lamentsons are not big fans of the kobolds. However, their talents in metalworking can't be denied when you find out that they're the inventors of one of the metal variants in your crafting, cobalt. Now I wonder, because cobalt is an already existing sort of metal, but... It does sound a lot like the name Kobold, so who knows, maybe that was why they linked that name with Kobolds. Maybe yes. that was why they named Kobolds the way that they did. <laughs> Which came first, the Cobalt or the Kobold? Hmm. <laughs> but their contribution to modern smithing techniques is undeniable, as is their talent for metalworking. Now, being a ground-based society, most Kobolds actually make their living as miners. And actually, Cobalt Society is grouped into divisions called digs, which actually follow a hierarchical order by number. It's nice that they have some kind of structure. A lot of people assume that beast tribes are sort of chaotic, that tribe name sort of implies a more primitive society. But clearly, a lot of these cultures, as we'll see, including the kobolds, are very much structured, even though they are still exiled. Indeed. So the idea is that there are a number of digs starting from the first down to the 789th. And based on a kobold's merit, their talents, their hard work, they can advance actually in society, their social mobility. They may move up into a higher dig. If they display laziness, however, or a lack of talent or a lack of initiative, they may be bumped down to a lower one. And it just so happens the folks that we make friends with are the bottom, bottom, bottom of the rung, the 789th order dig. I guess that explains why we end up doing all of their work for them. <laughs> They're a pretty lazy group, aren't they? And they'd rather go dole out tasks to somebody else so they can just lay around and do whatever they'd like to do. It's really true. If you read the quest text, it's so funny. They make no excuses for their laziness. And they will even resort to sabotaging other kobolds. They would. They would. 
They'll have you use bombs to blow up the work of digs of higher numbers. That's terrible. <laughs> There's even a quest where you have to kill an inspector that is coming to inspect their dig because they would rather commit murder than be subject to an inspection. So remind me again then why we decide <laughs> to help these guys. Um, They have a really sweet mount. They have a really sweet mount. <laughs> you do it for the mount. <laughs> and of course, their superiors in the more prestigious digs are always bullying them. So you actually, they actually kind of get this pity from some of the NPCs and from the adventurer because they get bullied, but they get bullied maybe sometimes for good reasons. They do have rather questionable morals. You could say that they probably deserve to be at the bottom of the rung. Yeah, I can't see them advancing anytime soon, so uh, good luck with moving up the ranks, 789th. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the lovable yet kind of in kobolds. Also in Lenosha, we have the water-dwelling Sahagin. Now, despite being bipedal and humanoid, they do have fins and gills, and they are natively ocean-dwelling creatures. As far as the small group that we actually see in western Lenosha... All of the ones that are present are males. There are actually very few females in Sahagin society, and they all live under the ocean. But females do exist. That said, it seems like the males are really the ones who are entrusted with raising young, because the Sahagin that we work with at least have this sense of familial unity. There's a clutch father named Nov who is raising the young in his clutch, and they're all kept in this nursery settlement to try and keep them all safe. Yes. What actually happens is that there's a matriarch called the Indigo Queen who will bestow a clutch of eggs onto a worthy Sahagan warrior to raise as his children. And our quest line deals with Nov's children and also his reformation from being a bad guy, a coral trident, into a good guy and a father. And there's more to the story, but we don't want to spoil it for you. Go do your Sahagin quests. Go do them. <laughs> but another interesting thing about the bad guy Sahagin is that they're the ones who most prominently use tempered humans in their ranks. You see the serpent reavers probably more prominently than you do the tempered of Ifrit or Garuda, even though they do exist. Right. So the Sahagin do worship Leviathan, and it's through that tempering by Leviathan that you see all these serpent reavers. Yeah. Maybe something about pirate society drives them to seek power in questionable ways. But the guys with the blue face tattoos, yeah, those are the serpent reavers. Not to be confused with the serpents of the Twin Adders. Yes. <laughs> all right. That's the Sahagin for you. Off to Thanalin. Woohoo! We have the Abalja, the big hulking lizard people. They're bigger than a male row, even. Now, the Amalja are a very proud and very stoic warrior race, and they focus on combat arts and the life of a soldier, and they have a very strong sense of honor. That's right. Even outside the settlement that we help, the Brotherhood of Ash, we see that where the Amalja are settled... It's very much like military-based settlements. You see watchtowers. You see all these guards just keeping watch over the settlement to see that nobody intrudes. Except for, of course, high-level adventurers who are way too intimidating to be messed with. But that said, 
<laughs> it seems like it seems like amongst all of the Amajal settlements, this is a recurring theme. For sure, for sure. And it's actually the Brotherhood of Ashes beliefs in the true way of the warrior that lead them to break off from the majority faction. They believe that the more fanatical worshippers of Ifrit are not only weak because they take their power from the primal instead of training and finding strength internally as warriors on their own, they actually carry out what the Brotherhood considers to be cowardly acts, such as kidnapping, picking on merchants, basically taking prisoners to be offered up as sacrifices to Ifrit to be tempered. Yeah, it sounds like the Brotherhood of Ash is a pretty honorable society. And that said, it seems like they're even open enough, open-minded enough, that they'll let people who aren't born as Amaja become one of them and hold the same status as their own. We see that when we meet Lunga, who is born as a Mikote, a Seeker of the Sun, and is a member of the group from the very start. And they realize that it's something that might be a little bit surprising to your average everyday person, but it's something that they're willing to do. Yeah, because she follows their code of ethos, and that's what's most important to them, not your birth or your race or your gender. Right. So here's here's an adventurer who wanted to become a member of a beast tribe, even though beast tribes may be looked down upon by some. So maybe that's one way to play a character, even, who is part of a beast tribe race. Join the Amaja. Hmm. Would you pass the muster of the Brotherhood of Ash? Something to think about. All right, next up, we're going to move to the Shroud, which has two beast tribes, the first of which are the Ixal. They are rather bird-like creatures. They have beaks and claws, but they also have sort of slightly humanoid bipedal bodies with bird-like hands and feet. They're a pretty interesting tribe, in my opinion, because you see a lot of cultures that are based out of, for example, Asian societies in, in Stormblood. But the Ixal are kind of unique in that they're based out of the Aztec culture. You don't often see societies that have been largely, you know, based on the Americas. This is true. So the naming conventions for the Ixal are actually pretty complex, and they were released by Koji Fox on the official forums, and they do sound vaguely Aztec. I think a lot of the beast tribes take inspiration from other cultures of the world. Now, the majority of Ixal live in the Zelvatal region, which we enter as a dungeon. There's also the Natalan region of Kurthus that they've colonized, but the faction that we make friends with, the Cattle Nine, live in the North Shroud. Now, this is unusual because by the will of the elementals, those fun little fairy deities that essentially rule Gridania, by the will of the elementals, the Ixal are not allowed in the Shroud because they have done too much deforestation. Despite that, there are still Ixal in the Shroud. There's a small number, and they keep to themselves. And they're the ones that are actually interested in aeronautics. Now, their reason for breaking off from the main faction who are fanatical worshippers of Garuda is that they don't want to get the gifts of flight from a primal. They want to figure it out themselves through engineering, through science. So this camp actually becomes your crafting beast tribe for a realm reborn. You're making airship parts to eventually form a hybrid dirigible airship contraption that will one day 
carry the Ixalt to their fabled paradise up in the skies. What a paradise it is. Yes. I'll just leave it at that. What a paradise it is. Yeah. So the legend says that up in the skies, there's a paradise called Ayatlan, which is the homeland of the Ixal. Now, this ends up being true in the funniest of ways. Of course, when we do the Fractal Continuum Dungeon, we fight Allegan Chimeras called Ixalion. And it turns out that, yes, these are the precursors to the Ixal. They eventually made it to the surface and evolved, or you could say devolved over many generations, and actually lost the ability to fly. They lost their feathers probably from the adaptation of living on land. So the Akatal 9 have this dream of regaining the gift of flight, but doing it through science. And they want to reach that place. And they do, they do reach it. They do reach it in the quest for Fractal Continuum Hard Mode, but unfortunately, Ayatlan is, is Oz's law. Yeah, and Oz's not law is not. not a very hospitable <laughs> place here. So when they get there, it's so terrifying that the guy that goes there just doesn't want to talk about it. And furthermore, it's so bad that their chief, Sezul Totolok, swears him to silence because he doesn't want any of the other Ixal knowing that, yes, this place exists and it's your worst nightmare. So just don't talk about it again. But I mean, yeah. more so, more so, I think it's, it's to build morale. It's so that they can continue trying to reach their dreams more than anything. Yeah. But that's still such a sad end to that story. Yeah, the thing that they were reaching for may have been just a myth in the end, or more of a horrifying reality. But because of that, they developed airship science, and they developed dirigible balloon-based flight. So that was their true gift, not the paradise. Perhaps paradise could be found on the ground as well. Maybe it can be found in just fulfilling those dreams. Very poignant. Now, who else do we have living in the Shroud? Indeed, and that's actually one of my favorites, the Sylphs. The Sylphs are so much fun to talk about, I think, and they're, they're a very jovial sort of race, but they're also one of the most peaceful of the Beast tribes. They don't really have anything involving war in a lot of their civilizations. And maybe that's because of just how small and cute and frail they are. It doesn't seem like they're very well evolved for fighting in the first place. Yes. Floating cabbages, not really very hardy warriors. Definitely not. Now, the sylphs that we interact with live peacefully alongside some Gridanians in the East Shroud in a place called Little Solace. And the story behind this name is a bit sad because you may notice that the area to the east of that, the Sylphlands, is populated by the bad Sylphs, the worshippers of Remu, the ones who will shock you with their lightning, the ones who plant bane stools and other smelly things around the forest. Now, sometime in the past, Remu was summoned and tempered a whole horde of Sylphs, and it turns out that these bad Sylphs took over the Sylphlands and kicked all of the peaceful ones out. So the home that they have is of quote-unquote little solace to losing their home. Aww. Yeah. That said, though, it doesn't seem like the bad sylphs are all that bad compared to a lot of your other bad beast tribes. In that, when we meet the bad sylphs at least, they don't really intend on causing any harm to us. Just don't bring any harm to them and they won't bother us. Yeah, it's a sad existence. It is sad for the good ones, though. 
Yes. Much like the Gridanians, they're concerned with the health of the forest. And they see the tempered sylphs not respecting the balance of the forest. But there are also more fun parts to sylph culture. For example... For example, dancing is a big staple within their culture. We go around trying to make peace with the sylphs through the power of dance. <laughs> oh, yes. Our warriors of light show off their dancing skills in order to try and gain their trust. You also see that they like playing tricks on one another. You see sylphs disguised as, for example, a turkey <laughs> <laughs> in the Beast Tribe quest. And you see, for example, that they sometimes enjoy getting a little bit tipsy. <laughs> yes. They get drunk on milk root. Yes, the milk root juice apparently is a powerful intoxicant so it seems like that would be a pretty fun beast tribe to hang out with and party with oh yeah dancing and drinking <laughs> all night <laughs> yes now something unique about the sylphs and one reason why they're one of the most peaceful beast tribes is that ever since 1.0 they've been involved with the crystal trade through an Uldan company known as the Ashcrown Consortium. And we found out a little bit more about them in the quest that comes at the culmination of leveling up all the Realm Reborn Beast Tribes, which we won't spoil too much of to encourage everybody to go grind those Beast Tribes. But they actually do business with the Spoken Races. They act as the Beast Tribe representative. And it's a really great example of cooperation. So that's a little bit about the sylphs and their culture, and it seems like a good number of people actually have embraced this sylphic culture so much that they would like to roleplay, and indeed do roleplay, as sylphs within Final Fantasy XIV. So they wrote to us, and we'd like to tell you a little bit about what it's like from their perspectives to play a sylph in XIV and how they get away with it. Indeed. We had a role player named Nicole write in about her character, Sasaxia. She is a Lullafell raised by sylphs. Now, Nicole says, it's a fun experience for Sasaxia. One thing which was difficult was the lack of sylphic information when I first began to play her. It's the reason I made her a child raised by them instead of actually being a sylph. I still have a lot of headcanon for them, but the need has lessened after the lore book. But, for example... Even choosing a last name with, was difficult. Did the sylphs use them? They ended up not using them. It's also a fun experience considering what weapons they would use and why. While Sasaxia is an out-of-character dragoon, she uses spears and jumps through the trees because sylphs. I think it's been rewarding, even if there is also the in-character and out-of-character struggle of people taking her seriously, because the sylphs act like what we'd call children. They're basically Eorzean fairies, and they can be terrifying. For example, from Sasaxia, the reason she has a flying chocobo, she tossed chocobo hatchlings from trees until one fluttered and survived. The big thing with beast tribes, I feel, is that they have different morals. Not as drastic as sylphs in all cases, which needs to be remembered when playing one. But, don't all characters? It's amazingly rewarding, though, when you find people who don't treat you out of character lesser for playing a sylph, or a dragon, or what have you, Watching these characters grow and interact is good for the soul, and the reactions can truly move role plays in a curious way. I agree with Nicole in that it's great to see those moments when people don't look down on you for playing one of these Beast Tribe races. Yes, that's very much what inspired us to do this episode. We also had a second Sylph role player, though. Uh, Katie, also known as Andromeda Rami Dulak on Balmung, sent in a submission about her alt named Rixia, who is a sylph. So here's what she had to say from her perspective. Rixie, as I call her, 
was kind of born as a joke. Another character was being uncharacteristically kind, and we started commenting that he just might be a glamoured sylph pretending to be that character. Because, of course, sylphs can transform into other forms. So that got me thinking, what if a sylph did that? Glamoured themselves to look like a walking one, but full-time. We see them do it for short bursts in the story, but with everything we know of magic doing, and everything sylphs are capable of, why not make her always look like an Elizin? There are some clear benefits to that, of course. Where Vath and Vanu and Moogles all have costumes you can use to make one in-game, sylphs don't. So if I wanted to play a sylph, and I did because they were my favorite of the original beast races, I needed a creative solution. Until the idea came to me that she could be hiding as another race, I hadn't really seen it as something I could get away with. From this silly joke giving me a practical solution to a major out-of-character problem with designing Rixie, came a lot about her past and personality. How good would a sylph be at hiding out? Probably not very. Rixie struggles with Eorzean grammar, and with names and personal pronouns in particular, falling heavily on the this one, that one, these ones speech seen in other sylphs, and giving people nicknames. For instance, she usually calls my main character Andromeda purple one because of her purple hair. And she really doesn't know much about walking ones. Since we see how sylphs reproduce in their beast quests, she's pretty sure that walking podlings come in boxes and it makes her nervous at the docks, fearing she might accidentally adopt a child when picking up her cargo. She also has green hair that turns yellow, orange, and red in autumn because, well, her leaves turned. So, while all her on-screen time is glamoured, Rixie is almost universally recognised as a sylph. She doesn't want to be. She left Little Solace and has complicated feelings about sylph society and Ramu. Most people play along with her insistence that she is a normal Elizin to humour her, but it's freely and frequently discussed when she's not around that she's really obviously a sylph. While I've gotten a few jeers from people in the community who have never interacted with Rixie, Almost everyone who has seen her in action loves her. She's naive and flustered and unsure in the most charming ways, I think. And playing with how easy it is to mislead her usually leads to light and funny roleplay. Rixie tends to get overshadowed by some of my more mainstream characters, so she doesn't tend to get as much attention out of game as she does when I'm actively being her in game. But through some Tumblr and Discord interactions out of character, I discovered interest in a Beastman of Eorzea link shell that I wound up starting with Vath roleplayer Aegir. Honestly, my biggest struggle is I can't play her for too long because thinking like a sylph is a very, very tiring thing to do. Not just the grammar patterns, but the mindset of sylphs, as I understand them, is very chaotic and rapid and frantic. It's important, I think, to strike a balance between leaning into the characterization of the beast tribe given by the game and making a character all your own. The themes of Rixie combine the light and silly nature of the sylphs with a narrative about trying to assimilate in a new culture and to fit in with the people around you. Taking these together, you get something that's both unmistakably their own person, but unmistakably a sylph. She'd also want me to point out that she is a cooking one because all ones must eat, and that makes food the thing all ones have in common. She'd want you to know that she is a very good cook, and that being a cooking one is her life's passion. Aww. So cute. Very, very cute. So if you happen to see Sasaxia or Rixia in-game, feel free to say hi. They both sound like great characters. Indeed. It's very creative the way that they've gotten away with playing Sylphs as Elizabeth and Lolfell and doing it in different ways. 
I think that Beast Tribe roleplay is a very unexplored area where there's a lot of potential that people don't realize. But maybe after this episode, it'll open up a few ideas. I hope so. But I suppose for now, that wraps up part one of our episodes on Beast Tribes. So in the next episode, I suppose we'll kick that off with the Heavensward Beast Tribes and take a look at some of those and what people have to say about their experiences playing the Heavensward Beast Tribes. Indeed we will, and then we'll move on to Stormblood and more user submissions. Yes, but first, while we wrap up this episode, every episode, because we love the game so very much, we give an account of something that has happened between the last episode and now, in-game, out-of-game, just as long as it's FF14 related. So, I figured I'd start today, if that's alright. Please, go ahead. So, at the time that we're recording this, it's the holiday season. In real life, we are in December, and the holidays are always a very, 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 very busy time of year for somebody who is running an event hall. So what I've been doing for the past few weeks is just running around like a madwoman trying to coordinate all these different events. So prior to this episode, for example, I was working on organizing a scavenger hunt that'll be happening during a winter market coming up this weekend. But not only that, I've also been working on decorating the Embrace Estate for two events, actually. The first being our third annual Very Merry Starlight Banquet that Remix and I have every year on Gilgamesh. But also there's a second event that's happening shortly after the banquet wraps up. That is a Secret Santa server-wide event as well, and that'll also be taking place in the Embrace Estate. So it's just a crazy time of year right now. It's great. I love hosting events, but that's what I've been doing recently in-game, is just getting ready for all these holiday events and organizing people and writing macros or helping write macros, writing up scripts that sound like a Dr. Seuss story. It's mm. been it's been great, just the number of holiday events that are going on in-game. And I'm sure no matter where the server is, we've seen, for example, events being hosted on Adamantoys, on Balmung, just all over the place. There are Starlight events happening. So if you're somebody who wants to play the game or is kind of in a place where you don't know what to do, the holidays are a great time to get back in-game and just check out some of the special events that are going on. If you even run around for a weekend, I guarantee you, you'll find something to do practically every day around this time of year. Absolutely. It's good to hear that Scoot Patoot is being the holiday party maven of Gilgamesh. He is. <laughs> <laughs> Natsuki will do his part, of course, as well. He's going to be a vendor in the holiday winter market. But hmm, hmm, what stories do I have? You know, we didn't get to tell our own personal stories from FanFest. Oh, that would be fun. I'll never forget how much we wanted to get Koji Fox's autograph for the lore book and how it's day two. I got in the line at about 1130 in the morning and Koji Fox happened to be on the floor and he was very difficult to find during the course of the convention. This was not a scheduled signing. These things were very, very haphazard. So you had to be lucky. I was in line and I'm frantically calling and texting Emmy. You need to come right now. <laughs> you need to come right now. <laughs> and I'll never forget how she got there at the last second, just before we're about to meet Koji. And I just love that picture that we took. 
where we're all doing the flame salute. But as we were talking, of course, Koji says that his favorite is Mrovab. <laughs> he's he's a Limsa guy. I'm there yeah. are a lot of people who adore Limsa. That's completely fine. Uda is always going to be my favorite in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That's why we had him do the flame salute. But there are so many memories we made at FanFest. I can't even recall all of them, but that was a memorable moment. And the story behind the photo that hopefully you've all seen on our social media. I hope so. So as far as our social media, though, you can find us in a number of places. We are on Facebook, for example. Look up MusecastXIV and you can find us there. We're on Twitter at MusecastXIV. And our website, of course, is hosted through Tumblr. Just go to MusecastXIV.com and you will find us there. You can, of course, find more episodes of MuseCast 14 on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play if you'd like to hear more. And you can join in the conversation about some of our episodes and ask some questions of your own if you'd like. And just talk about the game even on our Discord server. That's on our website as well, so just go to our website and you'll see the link right there. We also do streaming from time to time. We do story time stream usually every week. And that's on our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash musecastxiv. We're very, very creative with our URLs, I think. And if you like what you heard and you would like to support us in some way, you can do that in one of two ways. You can donate to us on Patreon, where for a monthly donation, you can get access to things like bonus content, all the things that we wanted to talk about on the show but just didn't get a chance to talk about. And you can also get access to episodes 24 hours before they come out, which is pretty darn cool if I do say so myself. You can also make a one-time donation on our PayPal. So for both of those, just go to our website and click on the shiny blue buttons. And you can also support our Twitch stream efforts on our Twitch channel by subscribing, giving us bits, or cheering us. Now, all of the proceeds we make from our Twitch channel go toward our streaming efforts and not so much toward the podcast itself. So if you want to donate to the podcast, then Patreon and PayPal are your best options, but you can always support us in one of those three ways. Regardless of how you choose to support us, though, we will be very, very thankful nonetheless. Yes, and we're very, very happy and very, very thankful to the people that have joined our Patreon since last time. We have four thank you shout outs to make. One is to Nathan Gregory. Thank you very much for your recurring donation. We have Chili from Moogle Go Round Radio and Phoenix Down Radio. He's one of our patrons now. And now we got celebrity patrons. We have Valerie Shokshis. Thank you so much for your generosity. And we also have an official sponsor. We do. So this episode of MuseCast 14 was brought to you by all our Patreon donors and was sponsored with love from our MuseCast sponsor, Hershey. You can check out her FF14 and variety stream at twitch.tv forward slash Hershnafersh or check out her Twitter at the same thing, Hershnafersh. That's H-E-R-S-H. N-I-F-E-R-S-H. So please look forward to our next episode, the continuation of the Beast Tribes. Until then, we will see you later, adventurers. Yep. See you next time. Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing Beast Tribes. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystal.